Well, like every week, um, we have the opportunity of um, opening our Bibles together. If you brought the Word with you, always encourage you to do that. Um, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll be able to read it on the overhead um, above me. Our passage this morning is f- uh, found in the Old Testament. It's found in one of the historical books of the Bible, uh, the book of Second Samuel. So if you're somewhat new to the Bible, um, you'll... Uh, learn that very quickly that there's an index in the Bible, the very beginning of the Bible, where you find all the Bible books listed. So you can look in there and find the book of 2 Samuel, or um, maybe someone next to you could help you. They see that you're struggling to find the book. Um, They can help you find 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel um, chapter 9, all I'm going to say before we read this passage together is that it relates... uh, in many ways, to the very thing that we're going to be doing here this morning in the celebration of the Lord's Supper and the grace and the mercy that is pictured in, in the Lord's Supper here before us. People have said that the Lord's Supper is really uh, the gospel that we can see with our eyes, not just hear with our ears, but see with our eyes. And I think that's going to be reflected in the passage that we're going to be considering now. So what I've asked uh, at this point is for... Um, uh, Fred uh, Stewart to come forward. You know, Fred has been uh, working with us and serving with us for the last two weeks in an internship. I thought it'd be appropriate if he could just um, read this uh, for us this morning. So there you go, Fred. Okay, let's read Second Samuel 9 together. <clears throat> and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then the Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always." And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. All right, kids, I want you to listen up. Okay, look at me. All right, I want to I I begin the passage by 
saying something that I think that you can, can all understand. Um, before you put that up, can you take that off there right now? We'll look at that a little bit later. Okay, good, right here. Okay, so I want you to look up here, and I want you to notice how the story ends. The very last sentence is, and if you can read, right, you can, you can read that too, right? Now he, and you say, well, who's he? It's a person named Mephibosheth. I'll talk about him a little bit later. He was lame in both feet. It's kind of a funny way to end a story, isn't it? Kind of a weird, strange way to end a story. Kind of ends on kind of a, I don't know, not a very nice note. I mean, did, did, did the writer of the story really have to say that? I mean, if you and I were writing the story, I, I think if you look at the last verse, verse 13, look at the number 13, I think if we were writing this story, we would end it in this way. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table, and we'd end it with that, and we think, now that's a happy ending. But we wouldn't add, now he was lame in both feet. It's like, why, why does that have to be stated? Why does it, the story have to end on that kind of, of no? Well, it's, it's the way of the writer of the Bible basically saying, you need to understand, this is who Mephibosheth was, and this was his struggle. He was lame. Now, kids, you know what it means to be lame? Lame means that he, didn't, he couldn't walk. He didn't, have, he didn't have the use of his feet. Okay? Now, if you go back, A.V., if you go back to the beginning, go to verse 3, if you would. Can you go back to verse 3? All right. Verse 3, and the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kind, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. And then he notes this. He's crippled in his feet. Now that's a different word than the word lame. Now the word lame means that he couldn't walk, but the word crippled, we don't oftentimes use that. It's not, it's not a that's kind of a a word that's kind of an old word today we use the the more uh, the better word I would say is disabled he was disabled Um, the word in the the reason why you have the word lame at the end of the story and then the word crippled or disabled in verse 3 is because there's two different words in the Hebrew language and the story is originally written in the Hebrew language okay so, if you look at the Hebrew language, you will see that the word lame means actually maimed or just the fact he couldn't walk. But when you look at the word crippled, in the Hebrew, it, it gives the idea of being, um, as it's used elsewhere in the Bible, stricken or smitten. Smitten is like something happening to you. Or another word that could be used there is wounded. It's the same word that's used in Isaiah 53, which is one of the most extensive prophecies of Jesus in all of the Old Testament, where it says that Jesus was stricken, he was smitten by God himself for our sins. Or he was wounded for our transgressions. It's the same word is used there. So here's my point. I know I'm kind of getting technical at the very outset here, but I think it's very interesting that when you have, kids, when you have this man, Mephibosheth, who, who was lame and couldn't walk, the word crippled or smitten, basically, or wounded, tells us something, something happened to him that made him that way. Something terrible happened to him that that resulted in his inability to be able to walk, to use his feet, which raises the question at the very outset of the sermon, which raises the question, well, what happened to him? What happened to him? You know what happened to him? 
when he was a little boy, he had a, a nurse, kind of like a, a little bit more than a babysitter today, but there was a situation where the babysitter had him in her arms, and, and sadly there was an accident, and she, she dropped him. And he fell to the ground, and he hurt his legs. Now, today, if you're playing on a playground or something, or you, you break an arm or you break a leg, um, if it's not too serious, they, the, the doctors will put it in a sling or they'll put it in a cast, and it takes them a while to get healed. But if it's really serious, if you break a leg or you break an arm, sometimes you have to have surgery, and you have to go to the hospital, and then they have a few hours of surgery, whatever, and they fix your arm, they fix your leg, and then you're put in a cast, and then you have to wait until you can walk again or use your arm again. That's the kind of nation that we live in. We have that kind of... Those, those kinds of medical facilities and surgeons and doctors who can help us. But this poor Mephibosheth, he didn't have that at the time. There was no doctor or surgeon around so that when he fell and he hurt his legs, that's how he had to live the rest of his life. It's kind of a sad story, isn't it? But that, that is background. In fact, Sean, if you would put uh, 4 verse 4 up there, 2 Samuel 4 verse 4. Here's the story. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in both feet. He was five years old when that happened. That's like kindergarten age. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, she ran. And as she ran with him, quickly, he fell and he became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So that's the story. I won't get into the whole historical context. That's just what happened to him. So it's, it's a sad story, but when we, when we look at the end of our story, kind of, it ends on kind of a good note, a happy note, right? He has access to the king's table. That's a good thing. Not many people had that. What we're going to see this morning, I'll just say this, what we're going to see this morning is that really Mephibosheth's story is our story. It's a story of, in a sense, in a spiritual way, being disabled before God, being weak before God, lame before God, but God intervenes in our life and He gives us His mercy, He gives us His grace, He gives us restoration and renewal, He fixes us up, He fixes us up and He says, okay, here's the table and you always have access, free and open access to this table. That's what the whole story is about. So let's fill it out, okay? When you take a look at the very first verse, if you put up the first verse up there um, of the passage, there you go, you're going to see three main characters of the story. You're going to see David, you're going to see Mephibosheth, or uh, Jonathan, and you're going to see Saul. Saul, Jonathan, and David. Now, if you've been a part of the church for a while and you know your Bible somewhat, you know that Saul was the first king of Israel and Jonathan was his son. And Jonathan, like a good son, was committed to his father, but Jonathan was even uh, more committed to his friend David. David and Jonathan had a very, if you will, tight relationship with each other. They were deep, deep friends. And we have to understand something about Saul. Saul did not like, kids, Saul did not like David. He liked his son Jonathan, of course, but he didn't like David. And the reason why he didn't like David is is because when, when David was younger, and we don't know how old he was, maybe he was a young boy or maybe he was like a teenager, but when, when David was young, you remember the story of David and Goliath and how Goliath was a Philistine. He was an arch enemy of Israel and he's very, very tall. And, and Goliath would taunt, he would mock the people of Israel and, you know, who's going to fight me, right? And, and, 
and all the, all the men of Israel, they're all afraid of Goliath, and nobody wanted to fight Goliath, right? But here was this young boy or this, this young man, again, we don't know his age, but, but, but David said, I'll fight Goliath. David was a shepherd, and David was a courageous one. David says, I'll fight him. So he fought Goliath. You know the story. He had a sling with a stone in it. It went round and round and round, and, shoo, and it went right into his head, and Goliath came tumbling down, and he hit the ground, and David cut off his head with a sword. What a story. And the people of Israel saw the courage of this young David, and they said this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And they praised David. And Saul looked at that, and he became, the Bible says he became very jealous. And he also became very suspicious because he thought, well, if the people are praising David this much, when he gets a little bit older, he may be filled with pride, and he's going to want to take over the kingdom. He's going to want to take over my kingship. And that can't happen. So Saul went after David, and he tried to kill David on a number of occasions. And at one point, he wanted his son Jonathan to also kill David. But Jonathan understood the character of his dad, and he didn't respect that. So Jonathan's heart, the Bible says, became knit to David. They were very close friends. And basically what happened at a certain point is that Jonathan and David made what we call a covenant together that is a, a pact or a solemn agreement that involves promises. And basically Jonathan said to David, I promise that I will try to protect you in every instance, and if I find out a plan from my father to kill you, another attempt, I will warn you about that. And David said, okay, and I promise also this. I promise that I will always, when I become king, because God had ordained or set apart David in time to be king, because Saul was proving that he was not a good king. David says, when I become king, I will, I will be kind, Jonathan, to your descendants. So that's the agreement. That's the pact. And that's the background. It's important that we understand that. Okay? Now, we come to the passage. It's about 10 to 15 years later. Okay? So kids, when, when David and Jonathan made this, this covenant, this pact, they were, they were much younger. But now, 10 to 15 years have passed. They're a little bit older now. And unfortunately, during that 10 to 15 year period, Saul was killed in battle by the Philistines. And sadly, so was Jonathan. So all you have left is David now, out of those three characters. David becomes king. And you know, David could say to himself, well, you know, um, this pact or this agreement that was made that I, I made with Jonathan, he made with me, it's 10 or 15 years have passed, and you know, we were younger, and the circumstances were different, and so, and just kind of forget about it. But he made a promise. He didn't forget that promise with Jonathan, that he would be kind to his descendants. So David asks the question in the verse, verse 1, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, three times he says that in the story. Three times. So here's the thing. When you study the, your Bible and, and something is mentioned more than once, it's usually the Bible's way of saying, yeah, you should probably clue into that. Something important is being said. Okay. And I want you to notice, if you can look at verse 1, notice the exact words. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So he's remembering the promise that he made. But there's a word there that's very, very interesting, used three times in this passage, the word kindness. 
It's a Hebrew word that you find frequently in the Bible, and it's a word that is connected to God's covenant with us. That is, God's agreement with us, or this bond of friendship and love that He has with us. And it's the word chesed. Chesed. It's, a very, it's one of the most important words in all of the Old Testament. Chesed. And it, it literally means covenantal uh, faithfulness, or sometimes it's translated as mercy. Perhaps the best word to be used here is loyalty. Is there anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show loyalty to him for the sake of that promise that I made to Jonathan? What that really tells us is, that clues us in, and it's important that we understand this, it shows us something about the heart of David. There's a reason why David is called a, a man after God's own heart in the Bible. Because he had a heart for God. And David was, David was spiritually sensitive at this point, and he didn't want to give up on that promise. Think of all the promises that we make. Do you know that if you belong to the church, you make all kinds of promises? Promises that we're intended to keep? Okay, let's say, for instance, if you're married in the church, you make promises as husband and wife. When you become a member of this church, you make a promise. When you make a profession of faith in this church, you make a promise. In fact, you make a number of promises. When, it, when a person is baptized as an adult, they make a promise. When a child is baptized in this church, the parents are addressed and they make promises to the Lord to raise this child in the fear and the admonition and nurture of the Lord. I mean, we, 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 um, when, when, when a pastor, when a pastor becomes a minister, he, ha, he, he, he makes ordination vows to carry out his faithful, uh, office faithfully. Same thing with elders and deacons. You get, my, you get the drift, right? We make all kinds of promises in this church as Christians. But let me ask you this. How well are we doing in keeping those promises? No? Yes? We're all humans. We struggle to keep our promises, don't we? God never struggles to keep a promise. All the promises in the Bible are yes and they are amen in Jesus Christ. Whenever God makes a promise, he always keeps it. He never lies to us. This is what David is doing here. And what David is doing really is he's reflecting the nature of God's covenant promises with us. And that's a beautiful thing. Something to reflect on. So, what happens is that David now asks again the question, is there anyone on the basis of this covenant, is there anyone to whom I may show loyalty for the, for the sake of the house of Saul, for the sake of, of Jonathan, my friend? And there's a servant named Ziba, and he says, as we move on in the story, he says, yes, there is, there is. And his name is Mephibosheth, he's of the house of Saul, he is the son of Jonathan, and he's crippled or he's disabled in both feet. Now again, that's mentioned. And David's like, oh, okay. And when it's mentioned that Mephibosheth is disabled in both feet, that sets us up to say, oh, that's, that's an obvious challenge for him. This poor man can't walk. But you know, Mephibosheth's biggest challenge, if you take the story seriously, his biggest challenge was not that he was crippled or disabled in both feet. His biggest challenge was that he was of the house of Saul. In fact, if you take a look at verse 6, he's known as the son of Jonathan. Ah, 
it's mentioned there in the story very specifically and intentionally that he was of the house of Saul. In other words, Jonathan was Mephibosheth's dad, and Saul was his granddad. And that was not a good thing, because Saul hated David, if you remember, and Saul and David had this, this tension between them, so that when, when David actually ends up calling Mephibosheth to him, how does Mephibosheth um, react when he comes into David's presence? He falls down. He's like a dead dog. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, Mephibosheth could be summoned to David and he go, oh, I get to come in the presence of the king. And then he comes to the king. And he, and he, says, he says, oh, king, this is, this is wonderful that we can be together. You, you know, you remember my dad, right? You know, you and my dad were friends, right? You know? Oh, no, that's not, how, that's not what happens. He falls down like a dead man. In other words, he's scared. He's scared out of his wits. Why? Because Mephibosheth's not stupid. He understands what happens to the children or the grandchildren of rival kings like Saul. Man, they're liquidated. They're taken out. They're removed. They're snuffed out. That's why he's afraid. Thinks David's going to do him in. Yet how does David respond to him? Does David give him justice? Does he give Mephibosheth what he deserves because of his connection to the house of Saul? No. He gives him mercy, which is mercy means not giving someone what they deserve. But David even does more than that. He gives not just mercy, he gives grace. You know what grace is? Grace is a gift. Grace is like, give me an example of the difference between mercy and grace and justice, just to, to, to concretize things for us. Let's say you're driving down a street in Abbotsford, and it's like, I don't know, uh, 30 kilometers an hour, and you're going 70. You're in a hurry, and all of a sudden the bright lights come on before you, and then, and then you, 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 you are pulled out of the side of the road, and then you know what the cops do, right? They just sit in their car, right? They're on their little computer and checking out you, and they're checking your license. Maybe you got a record or something like that. And finally, you know, they get out of their car, and they come to your window, and they say, you know, you, this is a th- do you realize how, what the, the speed limit here is? Yeah, almost 30 kilometers an hour. Yeah, I, I understand that. He says, do you know how fast you were going? Well, I, I was, I don't know, I was going faster than that, I suppose. Otherwise, you wouldn't have pulled me over. And they go, yeah, you were going 70 kilometers an hour. Now, what would be the just thing for that police officer to do? Well, it would be to give you what you deserve, and that's a ticket. I don't know, what is it, 100 bucks, 200 bucks? I don't know what it is here. Okay, now... If he extends to you mercy, what basically a merciful response would be, you know what, I'm not going to give you justice, I'm not going to give you a ticket, I'm just going to give you a warning. Slow it down next time. Sometimes we get that, right? Sometimes the police officers give you mercy. But if he gave you grace, what would he do? He would say, you know what, not only am I not going to give you a ticket, but I'm going to give you a warning, but I tell you what, here's a gift card for 100 bucks. Go take your wife out for dinner. That's grace. That's what David does. He gives him grace. Well, what kind of grace? Well, take a look at it. Verse 7 is right in the middle of the story. And sometimes what you have in the Old Testament, you've got a chapter. Sometimes it's longer or shorter. But oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the, the main point of the passage is found right in the middle of the, of the, of the chapter oftentimes. Verse 7, around the middle. David said to Mephibosheth, Do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father David, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you're going to eat at my table always. He's giving him 
In a spirit of grace, he's given him three things. He's given him protection, provision, and a position. He's given him protection. David extends to him not justice, but mercy and grace. He gives him provision. David gives him an inheritance. And finally, he gives him a position. David gives him a position of honor and place at his table and considers him a son. Now, if you look earlier um, in in verse 6, David says, Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth answers, Behold, I am your what? Hey, I'm your son. I'm your friend. No, 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 no. I'm your servant. Man, I'm your slave. And David says, No, you're not. No, you're not. Now you're my son. Okay, we have yet to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to start winding it down here a little bit. Do you get where I'm going with the story? I mean, look, look at Mephibosheth. Right? Mephibosheth is disabled. Mephibosheth has no inheritance. Mephibosheth is in the status, in his mind, of just being a servant of the king. He's nothing. And in addition to that, Mephibosheth is, by virtue of his connection to the family of Saul, an enemy of David. That's who he is. Now you look at King David. By the way, does Mephibosheth remind you of anyone? You look at David. Here he is, the king. He's a king. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. He gives Mephibosheth an inheritance. He makes him a son of the king. Treats him like that. And he considers Mephibosheth not an enemy, but a friend. Does that remind you of anyone? You see, you have to ask yourself the question, as I look at this story then in light of the whole of the Bible, is then not the kindness that King David shows to Mephibosheth the same kind of kindness that God shows to us? And is this not this story of grace, that this grace that David gives to Mephibosheth, is it not, by its very nature, the kind of grace that gives all of those who embrace Christ Jesus in faith? That's the gospel. That's the good news of the passage. And all of what, all of what I've said, don't we find the beauty of that here displayed in the table before us? Because here we find Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Think of what Jesus has done for us. You know, Jesus, Jesus gave his very life for us so that we could be set free, free from the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin. <laughs> but, 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 but more than that, by virtue of his death, Jesus gives us his provision, his protection, and a new position as sons and daughters of the king. And all of those beautiful truths that I just mentioned, they're all displayed here in the table before us. Now, one final thing, and then, then I want to pray, and I want you to think about this. Three separate times in our story, it's mentioned that Mephibosheth has access to the king's table. 
David just doesn't show kindness to Mephibosheth and say, it was good to see you, and no, I'm not going to exercise just to you, but I'm going to allow you to live. Oh, no, no, he does much, much more than that. And ultimately, he gives Mephibosheth access to the, access to the king's table. Three times it mentions that, and I want you to notice, and oftentimes when you look at a story, pay very close attention not only to the phrases, the sentences, but the very words, because on two of those three separate occasions, it says that Mephibosheth always always had access to the king's table. In other words, David just doesn't show grace and kindness to Mephibosheth and say, hey, you need to come over for dinner sometime or have, have, uh, come to my table sometime and join for me for a meal. No, he, he adopts him in a sense as a son and says, you know what? Because you're mine now, you always have access to my table. And that too is a beautiful truth before us where Jesus says, you know what? Like Mephibosheth, when you belong to me, oh, you have always open, unhindered access to my table. And this table is for all those who understand that they are spiritually disabled. Even further than that, the Bible says that we are all spiritually dead in our trespasses, in our sins. But Christ frees us from all of that. And he says, this, this table is for all those who understand really who they are, weak and hurting like Mephibosheth, and who understand their need for forgiveness and for grace that can only come through me. That's why Jesus says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Listen, if you have never understood yourself as a Mephibosheth and have never really repented, have never really believed in Christ, today is that day. In light of this story, today is that day. And if you have repented and you have believed and you're seeking to lead that godly life, like I mentioned at the beginning of the service, then Christ says, come. Come and taste and see that I am good. In just a moment... I'm going to read a very short form, and then we're going to come forward for the elements, for the bread and the wine, representing the body and the blood of Christ given for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. And when you come forward, what's going to happen is uh, four women are going to be up front, and they are going to sing as we come forward. And I want you to listen to the song that they sing. And I especially want you to listen to the refrain, because the refrain goes like this. So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of his sacrifice, as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the king. And when that, when that song was chosen early this week, I thought, what a beautiful picture of the story of Mephibosheth and access to the king's table and our own access to the table. It's just, it's just beautiful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you, O oh God, for the gospel, not just of mercy, but of grace. Lord, you have always been gracious to those oftentimes who need it most. And for this, O oh God, we are grateful. And so, Father, we pray now as we are about to partake at the king's table, we pray that when we come to this table, Lord, we would come freely recognizing who we are, freely recognizing our need for Christ, 
freely recognizing the freedom and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And, O Lord, feed us at this table, nourish us at this table, and underscore the beauty of your covenant promises to us in Jesus Christ, that in him we are forgiven and we are free indeed. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.